Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website, located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community, because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm here with Laura Bloom, who is the executive director of the Ehlers-Danlos Society, which is an organization that's in the UK and the US. Um, and we're here to talk about Ehlers-Danlos um, and hypermobility disorders. So, Laura, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, um, I guess we're going to start with the basics, um, because you yourself live with Ehlers-Danlos, and I was wondering if you could tell us when and how you first realized that you had it going on. Yeah, so I have the kind of standard story of a long journey to diagnosis. Um, that we hear about so often, wherever you are in the world, actually. It, it doesn't seem to be better in the US mm. or the UK. It's just everywhere um, is an average uh, diagnosis of about 12 years. And that was my experience too. So I was finally diagnosed when I was 24 years old. Mm. After about 13 um, surgeries, fracturing my wrist multiple times, um, being told I was a hypochondriac, it was all in my head. And the usual experience that, that people had. Um, I think um, that my symptoms probably first started in a way that I felt like it wasn't usual around the age of 11. Um, look back at my earlier childhood, there are some other odd things, but on a conscious level of I don't feel like my friends seem to feel, it was around 11. I was always tired. It was hard to keep up. I fractured my wrists really easily. Um, it was the same kind of bone area. So actually within EDS, your bones with the hypermobile type aren't fragile, but the tissues and all the connective tissues around it were very lax um, and um, injured with mine. So it made fracturing much more easy. And that's why there were so many of them. And I now have my wrist fused and thankfully they've been great ever since. Um, but all of that happened without me knowing my diagnosis. Even when they were fused, they didn't know what was wrong. Mm. And to me, saying that you've got a, you know, an 18, 19 year old girl in front of you that's had 20 something fractures and no one was looking into why that could be. They were just like, yeah, well, you know, all the tissues around it aren't really there anymore. They're so, you know, 
torn and everything else. So we'll just fuse them. And, and it worked great. But now knowing what I know, that's just unacceptable to me that that kind of thing doesn't, they don't look at it on a multi-systemic level. It's, everything is looked at in silos, which I, I think is one of the reasons why EDS is so often missed. Um, but it's, it's just, it's the, it's the multi-systemic nature. It's the fact that the pain is everywhere. It's, it's non-specific things. So it's fatigue, chronic widespread pain. Um, I had a lot of, I was diagnosed with basal vagal syncope before having EDS again, because I'd pass out. I'd mm. randomly throw up and feel really dizzy and clammy and sick. And, and then they diagnosed me with, uh, with that. And, and, and I had endometriosis. I had polycystic ovaries. I had bladder issues but no one ever looked at it all together it was like oh you've got that and you've also got that so we'll treat that and it wasn't until a dietitian finally sat down with me because I I wasn't putting on weight um but I had very high cholesterol so I went to see a dietitian you know there was something I could do to put on weight but not increase my cholesterol and for the first time ever someone sat down and and said you know we we think that you might have Marfan syndrome actually that's what they thought I had mm. and so I finally referred to a geneticist and that's when I was told that I had hypermobile EDS. Wow so it's been quite a journey do you find also because you work with a lot of patients um and you know with um EDS research are you finding that there's a difference in the timeline between when women get diagnosed and when men get diagnosed as well? Unfortunately, there's not enough men to really see um, a true um, consistency because there's so many more women diagnosed than men. Mm. Lots of, of anecdotal explanations as to why that is. could be hormones, which to me makes the most sense. Um, it could be that men go to the doctor less than women, which I think is a little bit sexist in some ways, but it could be true. The fact that there's more women on social media learning about their health than men. But these are all kind of social um, observations and one that's never actually been researched and understood fully. And, and it came up as actually a research priority when we worked with the Comorbidity Coalition of the Society. And, uh, and looking into the hormones and the prevalence in women was something that was a, a high priority and, and something that I hope that we will carry out soon. Um, so I, I think you see a similar journey from what I've seen but you certainly have a very skewed female population. Wow, really interesting. So um, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, fusion surgery and um, various things that you've done since your diagnosis, well, and even before it, um, to control your symptoms. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about how you've managed your symptoms um, since the diagnosis in particular? Well, since the diagnosis... I've managed it very differently. Um, I think as human beings, we are taught and we um, instinctively think that when there's something wrong, there's a surgery or there's a pill to fix it because that's what society tells us. So growing up, there's a problem. You go to a doctor and more often than not, they offer some kind of surgery to fix it. So for example, before I was diagnosed, I had my knees operated both uh, twice, both at the same time. Wow. totally crippled unable I had to on one of them I felt like I had to learn to walk again I mean it was so so inappropriate to be done Mm. but there's a doctor telling you that will fix it and you don't know any better and it hurts so you do it and I was 15 at the time Mm. and my right leg rotates 40 degrees in 
and my whole life I'd gone to doctors about how much this hurt and the pain in my hip and the pain in my knee and what should have been done is when I was a child I should have had something called femoral osteotomy which is to break the, the, um, the, the, the bone up in the thigh and to realign it so that it's straight and it relieves the pressure on the hip and the other joints but it was never and instead a orthopedic surgeon got frustrated with me constantly saying I'm in pain and I think it's because of my leg rotation because that makes sense to me and said well I disagree um I think the knee surgery we did was the right thing but to prove to you put you in traction for for two weeks and they hung me from the ceiling were the words he used to prove to me that it wasn't because of the rotation so they literally hung me from the ceiling in traction at a very young age wow to me that that wasn't the cause of my pain after now i've seen three different specialists to get second opinions who all say i should have had a femoral osteotomy and still want me to have one because that's now caused a label tear a glute tear and lots of other problems that happen in my legs so real frustration that I had surgeries I shouldn't have had and I didn't get the surgeries maybe I should have had. And so as an adult, that's lessened my quality of life with that leg. And that's frustrating. Um, and I've had two ankle surgeries, which now, again, I wish I knew what I know now because I would never have had the first one because it was to fix a torn tendon as soon yeah. as I heal or again. And it's torn now and I'm walking around with a torn tendon. And I won't have the surgery because A, you heal poorly and, and b i've got a connective tissue condition so it's just going to tear again and right. i think that people have these surgeries that make them worse not better and there's not that education and understanding and knowledge is power at the end of the day and i never take for granted how lucky i am to know the latest in in these in this area and in research and and thought around that and most people don't have access to that and and they should and you know it should be common understanding orthopedic surgeons should be should know that they shouldn't be recommending surgery unless it's really, really necessary. And instead of offering better rehab, better physio, people that understand uh, hypermobility, so that you don't just get a few sessions and then that's it, you're, you're not entitled to any more. This is a chronic condition that's for life and physiotherapy and rehab should be offered for life. And, um, and that's just incredibly frustrating to me. I've had a lot of stomach surgeries. I've got um, endometriosis, polycystic ovaries, so I've had a lot of cysts removed. I've had a lot of adhesions that have stuck my uh, bowel to my pelvic floor that I've had to have done. They're the kind of surgeries that unfortunately you just can't avoid because you need to have them done. Um, my uh, liver is uh, prolapsed and sits in my pelvis rather than where it should be. Functionally, though, it's had no impact on my liver, so I'm, I'm lucky with that respect, so I haven't had anything needed to be done on that. Um, I've got a very, very ex uh, extended bladder that's prone to a lot of infections, have a lot of mast cells all over it. I've had a lot of surgeries, three surgeries on that. Um, I've had surgery on my elbow. Again, wish I knew now, kind of then what I know now, that I wouldn't have had that surgery. It hasn't helped. Um, one surgery I was told I needed was on my TMJ on my jaw. The side dislocates most days and it's very, very painful. And on a scan, there's a hell of a lot of wear and tear. Um, and I was told I needed surgery. Um, and I have never and will never do it because this is probably the worst area. The jaw is the worst area that you can have surgery on. It's just very, 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 very disappointing results. So, um, it, again, I only know that because... 
I, I, I know I'm in the position I'm in of hearing people speak about these things, but if you're in chronic pain with your jaw and it's dislocating all the time and a surgeon says to you, oh, you should have that operation, people will do it. And I, I remember very clearly an incredible man who was a, a model in London and it was he had multiple surgeries on his jaw and it never, ever recovered and he was in constant chronic pain with it to the point where he ended up hanging himself in pain. Oh. Just wish that he could go back to the day where he ever had that first jaw surgery and out of anything to do with his EDS, that was what put it in the end of it. It's just, it's so frustrating living with such a physical chronic condition that causes such like debilitating pain, but really the best tool and the best thing that any doctor could give you is access to mental health support and CBT and tools that can help you cope with the fact that you've got something that's never going to go that may get worse and that you have to learn to live with. And Mm. that is the hardest part of all of it. But if you get that right and you get the right system in place, then you'll have the best chance you can have at quality of life. And I think that's the biggest lesson that I've learned that unfortunately the cliche of a strong mind equals a stronger body is not a cure. It doesn't mean events don't still happen, um, but it's a way to be able to manage it and live with it because it can, can have a real impact on every area of your life. And for me, the switch happened, you know, since I've been diagnosed, I've had very, I've, the only surgeries I've had have been on my stomach where I had no choice. And I've been, I've had three ablations on my heart uh, for arrhythmias. Again, I had no choice on. Other than that, I've said no to pretty much every single surgery that I've, I've been told I need or I should have. For my label tear, my glute tear, I've got a meniscus tear, I've got a tear in my ankle, on the tendon. Um, you know, all these things that I know won't heal well, if at all, and will just tear again. And so you just learn to live with it. The best friend of EDS is to have strong muscles. On the whole, our muscles aren't affected with EDS. They just take longer to, to build. But then I actually had a really interesting conversation with a physio who said there's no evidence that there's a problem with muscles in EDS. But what tends to happen is people are scared to lift heavier weights or to push themselves because pain, subluxations, dislocations, so on. Physios actually telling them they shouldn't. Um, that they don't lift more or push themselves and so muscles don't grow. And I found that really interesting. I was like, you know what, that's kind of true. You're told to do it really low impact, close chain exercises, go steady. And that's great for maintenance, but it's not really surprising then that you don't see a big difference in in muscle development. I know when I did the marathon, for example, I did six months of intensive training and there was absolutely a difference in my core and my ability to be able to walk that length. Um, But you couldn't see it. So it wasn't like I was like, oh, I've got guns all of a sudden, you know, and muscles that I never had before. It, it was much more subtle. And I think that that's what you have to appreciate, that it, it's more of a subtle change than anything else. Do you see a difference between pre-diagnosis Lara and post-diagnosis Lara, aside from just the, the mental attitude um, and the way that you've approached uh, your treatment? Um, but also in the way that it's affected, you know, your relationships personally with your doctors, with everything. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very different in many ways. I mean, firstly, you grow up, you know, you, you, um, you develop, but 
I had a really hard time as a teenager living with chronic pain as that, you know, and all the different issues that I had. I was obviously also struggling with coming out with my sexuality. That was another problem um, around the age of 15, 16. Um, you just don't feel like you fit in physically because, you know, your body that just doesn't seem to work like everyone else's and you don't feel like you fit in emotionally because, you know, you're feeling things people shouldn't society tells you not to so it was a lot of feeling like I just didn't fit in um and I came through that and I I was getting stronger and stronger but there was also this constant lack of validation of how you're feeling you know you no one's explaining to you why you're in all this pain and and really that the main reason I do what I do is to en enable people to get a diagnosis validation management and care when their symptoms first start and i don't care what that diagnosis is whether it, even if it doesn't turn out to be eds whether it could be something like it could be lupus it could be anything else it could be another heritable connective tissue condition it could be hsd it could be anything i don't think it matters what you're diagnosed with and that could be controversial in, in to some people because Getting a diagnosis means the difference of them getting insurance or, you know, therapy. And I understand those problems too, but I think we just then need to work better on the on on the structure of how our society is set up and how healthcare is, rather than trying to tailor diagnosis to fit into that. I think it's we need to get the appropriate diagnosis for what people are suffering, and and if we do that at a time when symptoms begin, I think we'll still see people having a much better quality of life physically and psychologically long term. I think the journey diagnosis fascinates me. I think it completely changes the outcome of the patient. And I'd really like to um, look into this more and hope to be doing that quite soon. Um, because I think if we have some kind of evidence base for the difference in, in someone's outcome, fighting for a diagnosis for many years, all the different hurdles that can come across either being told they're faking it, it's in their head, they don't have a contract, or if it's a parent being told um, that it's FII, you know, that fabricated illness, and chance by proxy, even child abuse, mm. uh, you know, that's going to completely change your outcome, not just physically, but psychologically. You know, we're seeing increased prevalence of PTSD-like symptoms, which has been studied in fibromyalgia, for example, but not within our community, which makes no sense because it's similar um experience and i think if we can show what these people are going through to be able to access healthcare, to access management and care they may wait three years to get that diagnosis and then they're sent back in the wilderness with no one around them that can care for them they're not being given regular physical therapy and rehab and if we can get some kind of program in place where it's like right you get diagnosed with eds or hsd this is what should happen and that's what we're trying to build with the clinical pathways for diagnosis and management care is what we're trying to do with Project ECHO so that we're yeah. moving and not patients, so that we're creating a thousand new experts um, in EDS by 2022. You know, I ran, I ran EDS UK for five years and it was, it was an amazing time, but I found that was such a ceiling on national work that it felt like we were constantly putting um, plaster, band-aid over the wound and I feel like for the first time ever, having the Ehlers-Danos Society in this global collaboration across all fields, we're finally looking at how we can heal that wound and not just stick something over it and really fix the systemic issues of not having enough people to care for these 
these patients and families not having enough access, um, you know, in local rural areas and trying to understand the, the genetic cause behind hypermobile EVS, trying to find the answers, trying to get financial capacity to be able to give out research grants every year. In fact, there was just none given for almost 20 years, ever, really. Wow. Um, no update and diagnostic criteria. Just bringing, finally, these professionals all around the table to talk to each other and work together within the consortium. It's incredibly exciting and inspiring what's happened in the last two years just from giving people the platform for which it can happen. In. And that's what was missing up until this point. It wasn't a new concept of saying you need something global. The doctors were saying it, you know, it was obvious, but there was nothing there to actually take it forward. Hmm. Now, you know, you mentioned that you had a genetic test when you were um, already an adult, right, to, to get your diagnosis. Um, and in terms of what you're doing with Project Echo and um, how you're trying to bring awareness to um, medical professionals, right, to, to start offering this testing, what is the specific genetic testing that needs to happen in order to get a diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos? So I didn't have a genetic test. Ah. Um, so to, to further complicate things, there is no gold standard for hypermobile EBS. There is no genetic test. There's 14 different types of EBS, hmm. about to be a 15th as well, I believe. And we know the genetic marker for all of them except hypermobile EBS, which is the most prevalent. Hmm. Now, technically, even hypermobile EDS right now is considered a rare disease because it's one in 5,000. Now, anecdotally and clinically, we see that that could be more prevalent. But I think what will happen is we can show that HSD has that prevalence and we may prove as well that hypermobile EDS has that prevalence too. But there's, we need to prove that it needs to be evidence-based. So we're trying to work out a way to do that through our global registry. But the fact that it is just based on clinical history, clinical examination, medical and family history, makes it a little bit harder to guarantee that people are diagnosing in the right way and consistently no matter where you are. And so that's what Project Echo is trying to do, trying to create this consistency. Through the consortium, we're creating common data elements. So for research, everyone's using the same language. We're creating these pathways so that these new specialists that are created through Echo and long-term, have this pathway to know, okay, I know what I need to do to diagnose these patients. And, of course, the dream is that we will get to a point where um, we can then offer a genetic test for hypermobile EDS as well. That would be the dream. But I think HSD will remain um, a clinical um, examination and mm. medical history. And what will happen is we'll just keep seeing new genetics found that will keep people out of that larger group. Um, and I think that's how it will happen. And it's not, it's, it's the long game here. You know, this is, we're not going to announce next week or, you know, in a year we've found the gene for hypermobile EDS. I think it's going to be multiple genes. I don't think that they will account for the whole group of hypermobile EDS. I think it will create, you know, that could be 20%, that could be 10%. We might start to see that it's the same kind of phenotype within that group as well or not. You know, it's just a whole, it's a whole new world. And finally, for the first time, we have $2 million to try and answer these questions. And even at the end of it, if we have no genetic uh, marker for the for hypermobile EDS, that in itself is an answer, because then we can know right, where else do we need to look. Um, 
But I think I think genetic te- testing should be more accessible for people. I think it's quite hard when people are concerned they might have a rarer type when they don't fully meet the phenotype for hypermobile EDS. Um, I'm actually going through my own personal um, journey right now with that. So when I was diagnosed in 2004, firstly, there were only six types of EDS. And I hadn't had any of the tissue fragility that I have now. So I'm not your normal hypermobile EDS. I have things that aren't usual. Um, And I have recently been re-evaluated and told that they think I have a rarer type of EDS. But this is a kind of brand new information that I haven't ever spoken about because I don't know what that means. Mm. And I know for the first time in my life a full genetic workup. And so um, they said, if nothing comes back, then I would probably be diagnosed with an unknown rarer type of BBS. And even that, at this point, I'm 39. I've spent from 24 to 39 thinking I have hypermobile EBS. To then be told, actually, looking at you now, you think you have an unknown, unknown rarer type. Or to get my genetics back and actually find out it's one of the known types. So the fact that it's constantly evolving and... Mm. It's not just me that that would affect. And I think the fact genetic testing isn't fully accessible to people is a shame. I just think it's about time that um, genetic testing was, was, was at a more affordable level and that anyone around the world could access that without the help of a, of a doctor being the person that determines whether that was appropriate or not. Now, you mentioned, you know, about how pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis, you noticed a change in yourself and that it was affecting your relationships. Um, And it sounds very much like because of all the education that you've been able to access about your condition, um, it certainly empowered you, you know, to communicate with your doctors. But I'm wondering if at any point in the journey, um, you've relied on an advocate outside of yourself or whether you've always learned just to advocate for yourself personally? Um, so it would probably be better to talk to my wife about this, ah. <laughs> about how it affects me, because I I regard myself as being very strong um, and being very much in control of how this condition affects me. Mm. And on the whole, that, that that's true. Certainly, 100% post-diagnosis, and um, I would say in my late 20s, really becoming to accept this is chronic and and learning that that really had to come from my mind more than my body and how to deal with it. But you can't, no matter how strong you are, the fact that you've got a body that lets you down constantly affects you. And Mm. I think it doesn't help that people look at me and think I'm completely healthy. And Mm. I think what's really sad, and this, this is not meant to be woe is me, but I think one of the hardest things I find is that I honestly, I break my back for our community and I, I don't ask for anything in return. Obviously, it's my paid job. I've never claimed to do this voluntarily. This is my career. I love it. I feel very, very lucky to be able to do something I love so much. But I work day and night, seven days a week, pretty much 365 days a year um, to try and make things better for anyone living with HSD. Because I know how much is needed because I am one of those people. And I think I find it really hard when you then get trolled within your own community on social media for not looking ill enough, for not representing the community, 
or people questioning that I shouldn't even be on a salary, that I should be doing this, you know, because, you know, why should a nonprofit pay for someone to do something? And things that you just can't even get your head around that people would think that, especially like one of your own, you know? Yeah. But it's like, wow, guys, we're doing this for us. Mm -hmm. And and then you realise that they're like, oh, you're not one of us, you know, you don't represent me. And I can't possibly represent anyone. But I, I'm, it, it's, it's amazing, actually, how rarely I speak about being a patient from a personal experience. I very rarely do. I think I can probably count on one hand the amount of times I've publicly spoken about my story. I think when I speak about EDS, I represent the spectrum from people living all over the world, on different wealth levels, different types of EDS, on the spectrum. You know, it, it, it's, I, I try and represent that voice fully in everything I do, because I think the, the thing that you'll see when patient advocacy that people think is it's always sharing your story and your narrative. And I think what makes you able to do this long-term and as a career and as a profession is the ability to represent as many people as you can, as many voices as you can. And so that's what I try and do. And I find it very, very hard to be at the end of the day exhausted and then read on a forum that, you know, the most hurtful things that you're like, oh, my God. And then I've got, you know, my wife and work colleagues saying, what are you doing? Why are you reading that? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, what am I doing? It benefits me. Believe me, the wonderful comments outweigh it. And you don't do it for the likes and for the comments. But I think I'm a human. And so it's always like you feel like if I was in a wheelchair or if I was struggling more, for some reason that would be more accepted. It's, it's frowned upon the amount I travel or the amount I do or the amount that I seem to be able to go to the gym. And it's like, no, actually, I, on paper, I'm just as bad as many of you. Mm. I just manage it in a different way. And that's probably to be celebrated, not, not you know frowned upon. And I have my bad days and I give in to those. And I have my symptoms and, you know, EDS is still my demon that I'm trying to fight every day. And it's there all the time. You know, I'm on this podcast with my top half in clothes and the bottom half in my pajamas. We're both like that. (laughs) That's the reality. I find, you know, I had to call in my dog walker today to take Ripley for a walk because it was just a bit too hard today, but I haven't left my desk. And you just you just manage and you 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 change how you do things and you change things up and and that's just life and and certainly my um what, what my wife would say and something that meeting her really taught me about past relationships and how that demon had got into that was that I have this it's it's even hard to articulate because it's so on a subconscious level but I have this fear of not being enough for being burden with my health. And the pattern is always that I'll be in a lot of pain, which in itself I usually mask because I just get on with it because it doesn't help to invite that pain in for coffee, you know, just, okay, it's there and I'm having a bad day. And so I don't talk about it. I don't, I don't, you know, but she can tell or mm. scan results back that aren't what I wanted or I've had this or I've had that. And it's, it's playing on my mind, but on the outside, I'm, no one really can tell. But she can tell because apparently I then become, I guess, media is the only word I can think of. But like, 
um, I'll panic or I'll worry about things that aren't real because I can't panic or talk about the things that are real that are worrying me about my health. So I'll make things up that aren't there and she'll, she'll be like, are you in pain right now? Because you're being really annoying. You know, it's mm-hmm. that kind of like, oh, am I, you know, and it's like in previous relationships, I was always threatened by people, you know, obviously I'm married now, so I don't really have that thing, but it was that you'll meet someone else. Someone else will be healthy and be able to lift your bags or be able to carry you or, you know, and I guess that comes with the thing of, oh, I've always dated women. So I've always in my head wanted to be the one that's stronger and lift the bags and blah, blah, blah. And I can't, and I can't lift anything really. And, you know, or I'll take my nephew out and I can only hold him for a short time. And then she has to, and then I'm like, oh God, you know, is she thinking that it will suck to have children with me because she'll have to carry things. That's my own head. And I'm going there with that. And she probably didn't even think it. Um, but it's that thing of not being enough and being weak um, physically that makes me then feel weak emotionally. And because I don't let it show, it comes out in other ways. And so that's still there today, you know, and I live a very good quality of life. I'm very much on top of it mentally. I don't suffer from my anxiety or depression. And yet, you know, that demon is still there and, and, and gets in. And so people who are a little you know, have, have anxiety, have depression, don't have a supportive family around them, that demon can totally take over and be the difference of you being able to have a good quality of life or, or, or not. And I think that that's so essential to take into consideration. And so my diagnosis has helped, but it, it doesn't get rid of the fact that you, you feel, you can feel weak um, mm. in, in more areas than physically. And um, and not enough, and that could just be my my way of dealing with it. But I've heard others say the same. But it, you know, whichever way it transpires or it comes out, there's no way on this earth that you can live with a chronic condition that impacts so many areas of your life and it not affect you in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like you're very lucky that you also have someone who who knows your tells and is able to sort of call you on it, right? You know, which which we all need on a certain level emotionally, but to be able to have someone who can read what's going on um, without you having to explain it because all you do all day is explain it, you know. Um, it's, yeah. it's exceptional that you found someone who really understands it, you know. Um, so you've sort of talked to us a bit about, you know, how you get on with, you know, what you need to do for work um, and how sometimes you have to call the dog walker in and things like that. Um, And, you know, um, for those who are listening, you have an amazing video blog um, that people can watch, um, which you started in January, right? Yeah. So another example of of just not having time, I'd actually been filming stuff for the whole of last year as well. And I just couldn't together because I don't have time to edit it myself and now I'm an amazing guy that does it for me every month um so I had all this footage and I just had to make this decision of okay just park that start fresh from January and just the hardest thing is to remember to film things because Mm -hmm. uh, you're just doing stuff every day and you kind of forget to press the record button so it's getting into the and you know being really annoying with people just going can you just film what's going on right now <laughs> that way and you know you're that annoying person and <laughs> who I work with is always like 
I'm a vlog, you know, just <laughs> the one that's having to hold my camera for me doing things. But yeah, it's really fun. And I think it's a great way for people to see what I get up to and what the society is doing. And I try and involve in that some personal stuff of how I, you know, mm-hmm. my health and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's been one of the things that I found really interesting because I, I can't remember which episode it was, but there was an episode, might've been the first one even, where you talked about how you, you've realized that in terms of symptom management for you, the best thing is to just keep going, that when you stop is when things get harder. Um, and so you are constantly on the go. I mean, if anyone follows Lara on, on social media or watches these video blogs, it's like you don't ever stop. Um, so the fact that you're getting trolls from within the community and everything is just appalling to me, but that's the nature of trolling, I suppose, you know, um, but, but to see the way that you just keep going and keep showing up and like, you know, providing educational opportunities at different conferences and, you know, that there is a purpose to all of this. It's not like you're running around and having a holiday. <laughs> I don't really think there's time for that in what you're doing. I mean, there's not, the first thing, I'm, it's really lonely. I'm on my own most of it. I can't afford, um, obviously work, pay for my travel, but if my wife came with me, we have to pay for it. We can't afford that, you know, yeah. And it makes no sense because 90% of it, I'm stuck in a meeting room all day. I mean, that's not fun for my wife. So yeah. she comes now and then, but also she's an actress in the West End. So she's usually on stage and can't take time off. So it's lonely. Um, it's relentless. It's a lot of travel. It's exhausting. It's, it's jet lag. It's time zones. But honestly, I take that over sitting, sitting down and, and giving into it because yeah. I think that the blog you you refer to is January and I just come back from a vacation with my wife's family to Canada. Mm. We had very little phone signal, so I couldn't work even on my phone. And we just stopped. Um, and that was off the back of, I think, six to eight weeks of relentless traveling. I'd done three weeks or something in the East Coast US and West Coast, actually, and then Australia. And then I'd been back for four days and then we went to Canada. Huh. And, I just stopped. And honestly, I couldn't stop sleeping. It, mm. I literally at one point said, is the fire okay? Am I having carbon dioxide poisoning? Because right. I cannot physically keep my eyes open. I can't even join in in conversation. I feel like I've been drugged how tired I am. And it was like really obvious chronic fatigue that my adrenaline and my constant moving have kind of kept at bay. And the second I stopped, it was, but the thing is, is it's like people are like, well, your, your body needs it. You need it. I didn't feel any better. Mm. I, it wasn't, it didn't make me recover in any way. It made me feel worse. I felt miserable. I felt depressed. I felt even more of that heightened, like my wife's family, everyone was going skiing. I literally sat sulking on the sofa, like a five-year-old, like, I can't my wife won't let me ski because, you know, it's, it's her fault for not letting me ski, which is ridiculous because it's, of course, not her fault. And she's just being caring and loving and being like, you can't ski because of your neck, because of your legs, because of everything. And I'd make it suck for everyone else because, of course, I'd fall and break something or something mm. terrible happen. And I'd be that person being airlifted off. And for what, you know? And, you know, I got my way and went up and did one of those kind of um, accessible ski things. But I just... It really was not good for me of that whole, you're weak. You can't mm. do it. You're like 
surely your wife would rather be with someone you know everyone's going off in their couples and I was stuck at, at the chalet like totally isolated so yeah. what, it was wonderful thank goodness I get on so well with my wife's family and I love them to pieces and there was a, her a mom and dad were so sweet and I hung out with them but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's my body that didn't let me join in with everyone else for that activity and it's very easy for people who are skiing and having the time of their lives to be like just accept it that's what it is it's like yeah you try it you know I want to ski I want to be with everyone else and I can't and I'm having to just sit by the fire and and you know or walk around while everyone's skiing and it's so that it, it wasn't good for me for my mindset and at the same time, I was also waiting for biopsy results. And I found out I had skin cancer on the second yeah. And so it was just, it wasn't a great time for me. And then not really knowing what that would mean. And thankfully, it's all been removed and it's fine. And I may have to have a bit of treatment for my immune stuff. But, you know, it was fine. But obviously, hearing that word, I was like, oh, God, what does that mean? Am I going to have to have more tests? Am I going to have to have this or that? And so it was that stopping that just made me, I think, mentally worse. And then that in turn makes me physically worse. And so mm. the more I do, the more I work, the more I, you know, get out and change things, then I don't have to think about the fact that my body might hurt or, you know, this or that. It, it makes me feel like I'm doing something to fix this instead of just, you know, accepting that this is how it is. Because the joy of having this as a career, as I'm ambitious, I studied, I, I wanted to do something with my career. And the, the wonderful side of it, if you take everything out, is that I've come into a career where it's so embryonic. There's so little that has been done. There's so much opportunity. There's so much that needs to be done that can be done. And that's so incredibly exciting and mm. like adrenaline pumping every day. It's like, yeah, we're going to change the world. Like, yeah. we, we get to be involved with this. And we have the most amazing team of people and it takes a village it really does dr claire francomano always says that i'm totally stealing it from her because it does it does it takes a village and it's not just me in any way i know i'm often the face and the voice that you hear but you know this couldn't be done without the firstly the unbelievable dedication from the medical professionals who on the whole give their time and expertise for free to make the stuff happen that we're talking about to the generous donors that have given to make this study possible for the first time in history, giving at that level, and to the incredible team of staff who daily look at me with such panic in their face when I'm like, okay, we're doing this now. And they're like, oh, another project, another thing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're changing the world, guys. And I know they hate me a little bit, but (laughs) we're part of something that's inspiring and wonderful and is changing people's lives. And that's really exciting to be part of. Yeah. Well, it gives you a purpose bigger than yourself to get out of bed in the morning for sure, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, you also, I mean, you talk a lot about the the um, chronic pain involved in the condition as well. Are, are EDS patients frequently also prescribed, you know, opioids and painkillers? I mean, you know, we've got this crisis here in the US. Um, so is that also something that's part of the protocol pre-diagnosis or um that you're seeing as a pattern or um is it something that that needs to happen more um how is that playing a role in eds functionality 
I think the biggest problem is, again, it goes back to lack of evidence. So we don't really know. We have so many people that take those medications that it just makes everything worse, the GI problems worse, and it doesn't really help with chronic pain. But then you can't not give anything because you're basically leaving someone to be in chronic pain all the time. Um, I think, <clears throat> personally, I don't take anything for pain um, because CBT, mindfulness, like, mind mind over matter which is the worst most annoying phrase but that approach <laughs> for me helps me with the pain and like I said that's a perfect example when I stop that's when I feel more pain um but there's people who are absolutely stopped in their tracks from pain and we have to find a way to make that better so we need to do you know um controlled studies where we look at the different medications and the impact it has and we need to do natural history studies and we need to do you know, longitudinal studies to really work out what impact is is being had to make people have different outcomes. Is it medication? Is it is it environment? Is it diet? Is it, you know, genetics? You see it worse in their families. All these questions that we have, but we just don't have the evidence of the research to answer. And pain management and fatigue management are two of the biggest areas um, that we just don't know enough about. So we're kind of throwing stuff at it that's probably not appropriate. Mm. Now, um, I, I mean, you talked a lot about also, you know, what it's like working in your role, right? And how you're just constantly on the go. Um, and I'm wondering if, if outside of your experiences with practitioners, medical practitioners, where you've been forced to justify, you know, that you had something going on when people didn't believe you. Um, how often is that happening sort of on a daily basis, even just when you're at the airport or, you know, running errands that, that you find yourself in a position where you have to explain and educate um, and that the onus is on you to do that? Um, well, more and more and more Doctors who I'm are not EDS. Well, firstly, I'd like to say that there is no such thing as an EDS specialist. It doesn't exist. So you either have a geneticist, a rheumatologist, a gastroenterologist, so and so, who has taken an interest and um, developed their skills and their knowledge within EDS. Mm. You don't have a one-stop shop doctor for EDS. So when we say EDS specialist, there's not really any such thing. Any doctor can care for someone with EDS. Mm. They do need to be willing to learn more and understand more about the condition so that's why echo is so exciting so that's the first mm. but what i'm finding more and more is when i go to um a and e so accident emergency i think you guys call it mm-hmm. doctor who is not part of my eds circle of doctors i have to explain less and less what eds is which okay. is really great i'm really mm. refreshing I still don't think I've ever got to the point where I've just been talking to, you know, John Smith on the street that doesn't have a connection, family connection to EDS that knows what it is. It's not, it's still HSD and EDS is still not like a household name, whereas something like MS is, Mm. which is probably, you know, it's another rare condition. Why does everyone know what MS is, but not EDS when, for sure, HSD and EDS are so prevalent, you know, it's, mm. it's so high. So that's one thing. Um, I think the the fact that it's invisible, the invisible nature of it makes things hard. So I have a disabled badge. Um, and when I park, I don't always use a disabled space if I don't need it because I'm aware that there's some people that may need it more than me on some days. Some days I really need it. 
Um, but when on those days where I do use it, um, you know, you get that look of you stole that from your grand kind of thing mm. or using that. And it's like you don't have to be in a wheelchair or old to be disabled. And that's really frustrating too. Um, I have the um, please offer me a seat, um, invisible condition. This is a British thing. We don't have that here. Yeah, so we I have that. Mm. And sometimes you'll go on a train and, and worst case, people just ignore it. Mm. Uh, you have to kind of point to it and you're you can kind of you can hear their frustration of it's been a really long day I don't want to be the one standing I got the seat but sure I have to give mm. it to you. that's really annoying you know I don't think it would be the same if it was a pregnant you know I'm pregnant or, or someone was with a stick or in a wheelchair um and I think I've spoken to a lot of people that end up wearing braces and using walking aids just so that people around them can see what they might be feeling wow. and that is really frustrating because you're not you know when you use splints and brace they can be very helpful but they also mean the muscles aren't working so that can increase debilitation as well Mm. so the the world should be set up so that you can be someone who's disabled without splints without walking aids without a wheelchair that's just going about normal life and for you to be respected and understood for that and we're not there yet you know definitely not in any invisible condition not just EDS and I think the awareness VDS and HSD is like down here and we need to we need to do so much more. But I think for me, I that doesn't surprise me. And I we're not even there yet. It's like first we need to know what we're actually saying this is. You know, that's why the, the 2017 publication was so important. We hadn't updated the diagnostic criteria for 20 years. How can we expect people to use it when it's that old? It was like baby steps. So, right, we've now got the latest nosology. That needs to be revised regularly. Mm. Um, we now are helping to provide a platform to educate doctors so that if they are willing to, to, to manage this, there's somewhere for them to go, you know, and so on. So I think it's a domino effect that organically over time, it will be more understood. It will be more credible diagnosis because that's the other thing. There's still people, medical professionals, that say this doesn't exist. Mm. and they don't believe in the diagnosis. And so that's why the, the genetic work we're doing with hypermobile ODS is so essential. You know, we have to get people to understand mm. what this is and, and how life impacting it can be. And this is where the zebra term also sort of comes into play. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that for those who might not be familiar? Yeah, so it's um, the, in medical school, doctors are taught that when they think, when they hear hoofbeats, to think of horses, not zebras, to not think of the rare. And so um, EDSs around the world kind of adopted zebra or the zebra, as you yeah. said, um, as their identity to kind of say, listen out for us, you know, hear us, listen out for the rare. Um, what's also nice, but the thing is, is we, we, we let that evolve a little bit because we're aware that we've got HSD now under our umbrella, which is certainly not rare. Um, and so we have horses and, and zebras under our umbrella. What is still yet to be understood is whether hypermobile EDS is also that prevalent. Um, but even if it's not, we'd still have the HSD community that we care for. And so um, within the within zebras, this blew my mind until I started reading about zebras and, and what stripes mean and things like that. And there is not one zebra that has the same stripes. But when you see a zebra, you know it's a zebra. So there is very, there's not one type of EDS. There's not one place in the spectrum. 
we all have different stripes, but it would be really nice to get to a point where when a doctor sees a zebra, sees an EDS or someone with HSD, they know it's a zebra. They know what it is. They know it's EDS or HSD. So I think in that way, I, I love adopting as ever even more so than the fact that it's rarer. I, mean, I, lo- I love that. And then the other reason that we use that is when you see a group of zebras together, it's called a dazzle. And mm. I think through the uh, Sound Society, we really are trying to dazzle. We're trying to dazzle the medical professionals into seeing what this is. We're trying to come together and cause a dazzle uh, with our patient organizations, our patients, our community. And mm. so more it's a more appropriate um emblem for us i believe yeah i think it's a a really beautiful metaphor it makes more and more sense the deeper you get into it doesn't it so um in terms of these you know as you're saying these doctors in a and e when you go they're becoming more aware and more open to the idea of even the existence of eds and the fact that you know if you say it to them they'll know what you're dealing with um do you find, especially because you mentioned that there are no specific EDS um, practitioners, that you would be going to a rheumatologist or a geneticist, do any of these practitioners sort of address the idea that that patients of these conditions are shuttled from specialist to specialist to specialist and that either there's, are you developing a protocol for that within ECHO um, or is that something that... Um, you know, needs to be developed more in the medical community in terms of empathy and and bedside manner. I think certainly the dream would be a, an, a multidisciplinary team at a, an EDS centre around the world. So all around the world, you'd have a HSD clinic, and you would, you know, cases would be discussed amongst colleagues. You know, each time you would have a very small pool of referrals because. It in the same department, in the same place, and you'd have all aspects of the multi-systemic nature covered, including mental health. Um, that's the dream. We're far from that. But what we're trying to establish is, like you said, those protocols where we're, through ECHO, we're encouraging that we need to approach it for what is the ideal, and through the clinical pathways of where to refer to and how. Um, and I think that people, we, we need to prove the burden on the patient of that multiple doctor visits. Now it's okay if those multiple doctor visits end up helping managing care, but it's when those multiple doctor is like, I don't know what's wrong with you, go to them. I don't know what's wrong with you, go to them. So it's it's just a much more streamlined, you can't see one doctor for everything. You just can't and you shouldn't. Um, but if everyone was actually talking to each other and working together, then that would be the ideal. Absolutely. So do you often see that that EDS and HSD um, patients end up on government assistance as well? Yes, because often people aren't well enough to work. And again, I think if we could prove the, that and how that journey and lack of diagnosis is ending up that people are much more iller than they need to be and they could actually work if they were treated and managed when they're simply done, that's the way that you start to make systemic changes and that's what we're trying to do um, on a government level of showing cost in healthcare systems of what happens when you mismanage patients and how all the different impacts that come off of that and how we can. 
And are you seeing a, a, a very big um, distinction between how healthcare and patient management and symptom management happens in the US versus the UK for these conditions as well? Not really. Um, I think you have great examples in places all over the world and not just in, you know, we spoke to a great team in Sweden the other day who were doing great work in Paris, Italy. Um, it, there's certainly countries out there that have one person struggling to do everything and they have to see But there's, there's great examples and bad examples everywhere. But even in the countries like the US and the UK that arguably have the most amount of EDS aware doctors, there's still people that aren't getting access to anything. So I don't think, I think there's examples of clinics and people that are doing great things in our countries. Mm, interesting. I always wonder in terms of especially the economic impact as well, because in the UK, you do have the NHS, so you do have a nationalized health system. But it seems like, you know, things like genetic testing and stuff, that's stuff that you'd probably have to go through a private health insurer for, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, the NHS for me, you know, again, controversial. The NHS is fantastic if you're dying, if you have something that's immediate and urgent. I don't think I'd want to be under, under any other care in the world for that. It's not so good for chronic health mm. because it's, you know, when you go through a hospital, for example, and it's like an accident, an emergency, it's like, oh, is it critical? Are you dying? If not, okay, we'll refer you to one of these clinics. Usually they have quite a long wait. And again, you, there's only a certain amount of visits or things that you can have. So, for example, physiotherapy, you're not going to be able to get physiotherapy for life. You're not going to be able to get mental health support for life. Um, it's also geographically dependent on where you're living in the country as to what you can have access to. So it's a great system. It's a much loved system, but it has its flaws. Hmm. I mean, it's very interesting. You mentioned that the system isn't built for chronic illness, but you know, my understanding and my experience is that none of these systems are built for chronic illness. You know, all of the systems. In, yeah. in terms of healthcare, they're built for, they're not built for preventive. They're built for, um, you know, uh, when, when you're actually sick and when you're dying, as you say. This world isn't built for chronic That's. Yeah. But that's what you're working to change as well, isn't it? You know, that uh, not just awareness, but like dealing with medical practitioners and creating protocols and creating, um, you know, systems for, for, referral, um, which is just amazing that you're able to do that um, through the Ehlers Danlos Society. So for anyone listening, definitely look them up and what you guys are doing because it's really wonderful. Um, so we're, we're sort of, we're coming to the end here. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to add because you've, you've had so many wonderful insights and anything else you'd like to share um, before I get to my top three lists, <laughs> which is how I usually wrap up the interview, but um, anything else you'd like to share about your experience and your hope for the future um, and, and what you see for the future of Ehlers-Danlos and um, hypermobile disorders? Um, I mean, I think we've covered it all. I, I think, I think people should be hopeful. I mm. think we're entering a time that we've never had before. Um, we've got the infrastructure in place um, to really change things for people. I think people impatiently want it all now, and I don't blame them at all. I want it now too. 
but they don't realise the huge amount of complexities that go into every single change that needs to happen and how things need to be done in the most appropriate scientific evidence-based ways, the way that we need to start at the bottom and work up and not aim for that and for it all to fall down. Um, so I think people need to be patient, that people need to be hopeful, um, be optimistic that things are changing. Um, Realise as well how much people need to take a little bit more responsibility for things. So, for example, people are constantly saying, EDS is rare, EDS is rare. Um, but the only way for us to prove that is to have everyone on our registry. And for, for example, we've got 77,000 people following us on Facebook. I think we've got about 5,000 on our registry. Mm. And so, you know, I, I'll go to a conference or I'll go into a room and there's people that are absolutely spouting all the things you should do this, you should do that. And I'll say, you're on our registry. Oh, oh no, I haven't had time. Or do mm. Give us 20 minutes of your life and show us, put your hand up, how many people are living with this and let us prove that this is as, as prevalent as, as everyone is saying. Um, so things like that can be frustrating. People kind of want it all now and they're not really willing to realise the amount of work, even spending 20 minutes to put your own data onto a registry. Mm. So that can be frustrating. Um, but then I also understand that frustration because there's people that are, you know, have no, sometimes no diagnosis, no management, no care, no family around them, no friends around them, no support system whatsoever. And it's heartbreaking and we need to do more for that. And things that we're trying to do, for example, um, we, we put on our conferences and events and to see people's faces when they meet people with EBS for the first time is incredible. And something that we're launching in May as well, which we haven't mentioned, um, we're going to be announcing soon is we're, we're starting virtual online support groups. Because oh, wow. We know- that's great. Can't reach and get to a support group. They might be bed bound. They might not be able to get in the house. They might not be able to afford to travel to a conference. But we still want to give people the online space to be able to talk and just chat to other people like you. And so we're just tr- constantly trying to think of ways that we can bring the society into people's homes and the work that we're doing to change their lives as well, and not just the big broad strokes of things. How we can make everyone's lives better. Um, and you know we're constantly doing things and and i really would ask everyone you know go onto our website register for our newsletter get you know updated um with all the work we're doing get on the registry show us that you exist help us to prove this prevalence and to show um really what it's like to live with this condition um and and do what you can if there's people out there that have the capacity please support us financially to enable us to continue the work we're doing because you know, there, there's we don't have the kind of government level support that other conditions and and, and issues have. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So here's how we wrap it up. I do these top three lists, um, and I'm wondering uh, what your top three tips are for someone who suspects they may be entering the world of EDS um, or HSD. What you would recommend? that they they do to take control of their situation? Okay. So um, on our website, ellis-danlos.com, we have a medical professionals directory. And on that, we have every single country around the world and a list of EDS-aware doctors. And it's not just doctors, clinicians, physiotherapists, OTs, podiatrists, everything you can imagine. Go on there where your nearest EDS um, doctor is that could help you. Failing that, contact us at helpline at ellis-danlos.com and ask us uh, where you can go, what you can do. We have an amazing 
um, patient support team um, in our organisation. Advice, support, signpost you to where you need to go. And there's lots of medical content on our website as well. Amazing. Well, it's just so wonderful that you, you've created a community and that, you know, you're doing this virtual, um, you know, helpline and that, you know, people can reach out to you with questions and concerns and you're making yourselves very available. So um, I'm sure the community thanks you for that. I certainly do. Um, now, in terms of your own experience, um, our last top three list is I'm sure you've had to, you know, obviously make um, lifestyle changes to to manage your own your own symptoms, and I'm wondering if you have any cheats, any guilty pleasures, or secret indulgences, or even comfort activities that you like to engage in when you're having um, a flare of pain or um, you know muscular issues. W- what do you turn to? Hmm, it's a tricky one because mm. really my top three would be to try and prevent all of that and be yes. And my top three, th- I'll, I'll give you a top six because it's in two. So my top three for preventing to live, kind of live your best life, let's mm. say, yes, is a clean as possible diet. And there's not one set diet for that. We, you know, try things until you feel better. Mm. My thing that helps me the best is to avoid um, carbs and avoid lots of sugar and to just eat as clean as I can and to drink lots. The second thing is to do high dose vitamin C. B12, B, and magnesium. Um, that really made a huge, huge difference to me, like more than I can even cover in this, this podcast. But if you go to my YouTube page, there's a whole video on what vitamins do I take and why. Watch that. Hopefully it can help. Mm. And of course, the most important thing is to keep your muscles as strong as possible. Do as much movement as you can. Keep your core and your legs strong. That will help stomach issues, GI problems, pain. And the things that... When you haven't done that, which believe me, I know the reality of trying to maintain that daily, I struggle with it, um, is to find a good old box set on Netflix and indulge, give in and rest. Mm. Uh, and honestly, this is my first podcast I've ever done. But what? yeah, this is my first podcast I've ever done to actually be interviewed on. But also, I only first started listening to podcasts about three months ago. And oh, wow. that changed my world because when I'm traveling, there is nothing better than just sticking your earphones in and listening to a podcast. And I'm a bit of a politics geek, so I like things about international relations, uh, the war on terror. Um, there's a great one called Serial about, like, uh, you know, the, the um, unex, uh, un, what's the word? Sort of Unsolved murders. Oh, that's the word. Yeah, unsolved yeah. murders. <laughs> brain fog um for me are great because i find sometimes reading a book even putting my head down and reading and concentrating on words on a page it can hurt my neck it can give me a headache and sometimes it's hard to really focus when you've been really busy and at it so podcast to me is really great escapism and and i've i've loved it so it's really fun to be part of this as well um and then the third thing is just being around people that love you and that you love and that can make you smile and happy and forget about everything. I have an amazing circle of friends. Um, I'm very, very lucky that I've known since I was a child. Um, every Monday night when I'm in the country, um, we, I have a group of girls that I've got together with for tea and gossiping every Monday night since I was 15 years old. Oh, wow. Um, 39. So that tells you how many years that's been. And we started off, 
in a in a coffee lounge in a hotel down the road and it's evolved to different people's houses when we first got our own flats so now most of them having children it's all being married and we still drop everything and come around together on a monday night and drink tea and dip biscuits and um and talk about everything and that's things like that to me are a real comfort that's really gorgeous. It makes me want to have a, a Monday night gossip and tea sesh with my girlfriends. I've got to talk to them about getting that together now. <laughs> well, Lara, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And we'll certainly link to everything that you've mentioned, including, um, and we didn't really get into this too much, but there is a documentary about you walking the London Marathon back in 2011, I believe. Um and this is all on Lara's website as well, but we'll link to it directly um, on the podcast page because uh, it's really worth watching. Um, you're really just such an incredible human. And, uh, you know, as, as a host of a podcast like this, to me, the greatest gift is that I'm able to sit and commune with people like you who are not only surviving um, and surviving gracefully, um, with these illnesses, but who are also advocates, you know, um, and the fact that, that that's what you've made it your life's mission to do is exceptional. So can't thank you enough for being on today. Um, it's been such a pleasure and I hope we'll have you back again soon. Thank you. I'd love that. Thanks for everything. Thank you. That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.